0: We're going to start drilling down today into Jonah, this story, the book of Jonah, as we set the table last week and we begin to dig into this now, Jonah chapter one in your Bibles, Jonah chapter one, Jonah is a part of the Bible that is referred to as the minor prophets, and by that, it's not meant that their message was any less important than those major prophets like Isaiah or Jeremiah. It's just speaking really to the length of the book itself. They, the minor prophets are much more brief in their their length, whereas the major prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, you 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 obviously they're much longer. As you look at those. And so Jonah is in the Minor Prophets towards the end of the Older Testament in your Bibles. Or if you have your mobile device with you, a tablet, it's easy for you to just find the uh, index and look it up. Jonah 1, chapter 1. We're going to begin looking today at, at this book. Just the first three verses of Jonah 1 as we consider running from the presence of God. Would you say that with me? Running from the presence of God. Say it again. Running from the presence of God. Jonah ran. Jonah ran. He ran in fear. That fear that we were talking about earlier. We're going to look at this. Jonah 1, verses 1 to 3. Look at it with me. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Advent. It's happening right there in Jonah. Advent. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. And call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose instead to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish Away from the presence of the Lord. It, it's interesting to note here, just by way of of introduction, the, the, there are various names that the Lord has, Jehovah, Adonai, Yah, All these names in the in the Old Testament, in particular. One of those names is the name Yahweh. It was considered a very sacred name uh, later on in Hebrew history, so much so that they would not pronounce this name, Yahweh. the 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 name Yahweh sets apart the book of Jonah from from most of the Old Testament prophets, because. It it doesn't begin with uh, some sort of title that is given of God, but rather it begins with God's self-revelation. That's what Yahweh triggers to us in our minds or should trigger to us because Yahweh was the very personal name of God. The personal name that he would use to emphasize that he is Redeemer and Savior of humankind. He is a God that cuts covenant with humankind. And he keeps his covenants. And he seeks to be very personal with humankind. To share relationship that is personal and intimate with humankind. The name Yahweh speaks of all of that. Whereas the name, for instance, Elohim, which is also translated Lord, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Yahweh is used there. Elohim is also translated Lord, but it emphasizes instead the transcendent character of God. That God is great. He's transcendent. He is He is. He he exists outside of, of, of time and all that we know. But Yahweh says with that transcendence, He's also very intimate, so we see these tensions that exist. It's significant that with Jonah, God uses the name. He goes by His name, Yahweh. Speaking of His desire for Intimacy and relationship. We must see the heart that's there as we launch in to this story of Jonah. As we begin to drill down into it. That God seeks to be very personal. He seeks to be very intimate with humanity. His creation. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, and Jonah ran. Let me read it to you again uh, by a different translation just to help us get a hold of this. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. Preach and proclaim, for their evil and their disorder has come up before my face. Yahweh says, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish away from the face and the presence of the Lord. Jonah is someone that was really, really, really an unlikely emissary of the Lord. You see, the challenge with running from God is that you'll always run into Him. And this is where our story begins. When the Word of the Lord came, Advented to Jonah, this is the characteristic way of beginning an account of one of the biblical prophets. The Word of the Lord comes. The Word of Yahweh comes. And God used the prophets to then convey His words and messages to His people, Israel. Especially in times of crisis. Even as early as verse 2 in the text at hand before us today, the original recipients of Jonah's story and message would have realized that this was a prophetic account unlike any that they had heard before. Simply even by Yahweh, that name Yahweh, that alone would trigger in their minds, whoa, this is is different. God is approaching us and coming to us in a different way this time. A very personal way. His recipients would see that and would have realized that this was a prophetic account unlike any other they had heard before. God called Jonah to arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. That is to proclaim his message of anguish and heartbreak toward them. And this was stunning on several levels that we must recognize. First of all, it was shocking because it was a call, watch this now, it was a call for a Hebrew prophet, namely Jonah, to leave Israel where Jehovah dwelt in the temple and manifested His presence and go to a Gentile city. This is not like something God has done to this point. The people recognized this. The recipients of this message were seeing this. God speaks to his, through His prophets to His people, Israel. But to send one of His prophets as an emissary and messenger for Him to another people group, the Gentiles, a Gentile city? Something's going on here. Up to this point in Hebrew history, prophets had been sent only to those that were considered God's people. While Jeremiah and Isaiah and, and Amos all pronounced a few prophetic oracles addressed to pagan countries, they're brief. So, so there were some prophetic messages that came speaking to other countries but they're brief and none of those other prophets that I just mentioned was actually sent out to those nations that they were speaking to in order to preach to them so Jonah's mission was unprecedented in this regard it it had never occurred before his was a call to foreign missionary work God wasn't just saying speak to them he was saying go to them and then proclaim this kind of vision was new and it was radical to Jonah his response sadly was one of disdain and contempt his folly involved a narrow theology that confined God to Israel. He had put God in his box, a box of his own creation. And God happened to decide to break out of that box. As God often does. How many know God breaks out of our boxes? We try to put him in. Humankind has been trying to do it for, for generations. The, the, the first box was known as the Ark of the Covenant. Well, God eventually broke out of that. And we keep seeming to try to put Him into our boxes. And when He breaks out of our boxes, we're, we're befuddled. And this is what's going on for Jonah. So it was shocking in that regard, but then it was even more shocking that the God of Israel would desire to warn Nineveh, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, of impending doom. First, God wants me to go, and then He wants to warn them? Now, you you have to understand... Assyria was one of the most vicious and violent empires of ancient Near Eastern times. Assyrian kings often... Let me just give you a picture here so that you understand what's going on in Jonah's mind. And some of the things I'm going to share with us today are a little bit gruesome. So I just make that disclaimer. Bear, Bear with that. Assyrian kings would often keep record of the results of their military conquests. Gloating of entire plains being littered with corpses and cities being burned completely to the ground. The emperor, Shalemeser III, is well known for depicting torture, dismembering, and decapitations of enemies in grisly and gory detail on large stone relief panels. He would have artistic depictions made of these things, all to glory in his conquests. Assyrian history is as gory and as blood-curdling as history uh, as we could know it. After capturing enemies, the Assyrians would typically cut off their legs and one arm, leaving the other arm in hand so that they could shake the victim's hand in mockery as he was dying. This is what Assyria was like. They forced friends and family members to parade with the decapitated heads of their loved ones elevated on poles. Through the streets. They pulled out prisoners' tongues and stretched their bodies with ropes so they could be flayed alive and their skins displayed on city walls. They burned adolescents alive. Those who survived the destruction of their cities were faced with enduring, cruel, and violent forms of slavery. The Assyrians have, in fact, been called a terrorist state. The empire had begun to forcibly call for heavy tribute from Israel during the reign of King Jehu and continued to threaten the Jewish northern kingdom throughout the lifetime of Jonah. Now, I I apologize for the, the gruesomeness of some of these images, but we need to get a, an understanding here of what Jonah was dealing with as God is now calling him to go and preach to this people and to warn them. It, it, God was having... He, he, his heart had mercy in it towards them. These, these people. So the Assyrian Empire was calling for heavy tribute from Israel. They continued to threaten the Jewish northern kingdom throughout the lifetime of Jonah. In 722 B.C., it finally invaded and destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel and its capital, Samaria. In that light, even so, it was the nation that was the object of God's missionary outreach. Think about that. All of this kind of history has been going on. And yet, God has a desire for missionary outreach to them. And he sends Jonah. And though God told Jonah to proclaim against the city for its wickedness, there would have been no reason to send a warning unless there was a chance of judgment being averted. Makes sense? Why would God want to warn them unless it was in his heart to have mercy? This Jonah knew very well. So then how could a good God give a nation like that even the slightest chance of experiencing his mercy? I mean, how could a good God do that? Why on earth would God be helping the enemies of his people? You see, Jonah found himself in that place like you and I often do as we were referencing earlier around the Advent lighting that we find ourselves at times in life in places of bewilderment and bamboozlement and confusion and question and why? Why would God, what is going on? What in the world is happening? And we are called, in Advent, we are called to trust. And to accept knowing That God is in control and he knows what he's doing. Jonah's there. Jonah's experiencing Advent right here. Why on earth would God want to help these wicked people? Enemies of God's people. And, And then then, if that wasn't shocking enough, perhaps the most surprising element of this narrative, this story that we're, that we're digging into this morning, was who it was that God chose to send to them with this message of mercy. It was Jonah, the son of Amittai. Jonah's name means dove. Amittai means to speak the truth. Here was this dove of God being commissioned to go and speak the truth. We're given no background information here. The the terseness of Jonah, the narrative, how it's written, uh, just very quick and straight to the point. No details. We're not not given any, any background information. In other words, Jonah needed no introduction that way. Second Kings chapter 14 and verse 25 tells us Jonah's ministry took place during the reign of Israel's king, Jeroboam II. In that text, in Second Kings 14, we learn that unlike the prophets Amos and Hosea, who criticized the royal administration for its injustice and unfaithfulness, Jonah had actually supported Jeroboam's aggressive military policy to extend the nation's power and influence. The original recipients of the book of Jonah would have certainly remembered Jonah as being intensely patriotic, a highly partisan nationalist it's quite likely that he and his generation considered themselves to have an exclusive right to the lord's favor so they would have been bamboozled that god would send a man like that to preach to the very people he most feared and hated and discriminated. Are you getting the picture here of the scene, of the story? Nothing about this mission of Jonah's made any sense. For certain, as far as it concerned Jonah personally, it seemed almost to be a cruel, evil plot. God, how could you do this to me? If any Israelite had come up with such an idea, they would have been at the very least shunned and at worst executed. How could it be that God asked anyone to betray their country's interests like this? Jonah himself was gobsmacked. He was astounded. And so it is that Jonah refuses God and chooses not to accept his mission. Your mission, Jonah, should you choose to accept it, well, Jonah chose not to accept it. You know, Tom Cruise always accepts the mission. Ethan Hunt always accepts the mission. Jonah didn't accept the mission. And he makes this ridiculous refusal of God. A ridiculous refusal of God. In deliberate disobedience and ridicule of God's call to arise, go to Nineveh, Jonah arose, but he didn't arise to go to Nineveh. He arose to go down. To go down in the exact opposite direction, verse 3 tells us. And this is the only instance on record where a prophet refused to carry out his commission. Note that. Jeremiah, Isaiah, Amos, Hosea, all accepted their mission. Jonah was the only prophet on record to not accept his mission. And we see here this interesting digression. We see here the first of three mentions in the story of Jonah going down. Would you say that with me? Going down. We see the digression of disobedience. He goes down to Joppa, verse 3 says. And then he goes down below the deck of the ship verse 5 says, as we'll look at in the days to come. And then in chapter 2, verse 6, he goes down into the depths. Beloved, this is the course of disobedience. The course of disobedience is always downward until God intervenes. Jonah went down to Joppa, then he went down into the hull of the ship, then he went down into the depths as the fish carried him. Tarshish, it is believed, sits on the outermost western rim of the known world to Israelites of the time. It was at the other end of the world from Nineveh. God said, go to Nineveh. Jonah went the exact opposite direction. It's one of those far-off places where in the, in the, in the Israelite worldview, in the Hebrew worldview, it, 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 was, it, it, it was considered to be a place where Yahweh had not yet revealed Himself. It was an ideal destination, in Jonah's mind, to escape from the service of God. You see, Jonah knew that he couldn't run from God's presence in the sense that, you know, he knew God is everywhere. I can't really. But what Jonah was doing was running from the call to serve God the way God was calling him to serve him. And he knew that to go to Tarshish. In the Hebrew worldview, Tarshish was considered an area where God had not yet revealed Himself. Here in Israel, this is where the temple was. This is where God manifested His presence. But there, God hadn't done it I'm going to run there. Escaping from the service of God. How many of you have ever tried to do that? You can't run. You can't hide from the hound of heaven. In short, Jonah did the exact opposite of what God told him to do. Called to go east, Jonah went west. Directed to travel overland, Jonah went to the sea. Sent to the big city, Jonah bought a one-way ticket to the edge of the known world. Now you have to understand, the Hebrews were land people with little experience of the sea. That Jonah was prepared to entrust himself to an ocean-going vessel rather than face up to God's call is proof positive in itself of his mad determination. His ridiculous refusal of God. His folly. In essence, Jonah's actions were intentionally making mockery or comic parody of God's call and command. But as we are going to see as we go on in the story, it's God who has the last laugh. Jonah reads almost like a satire. A, a story of humor and comedy. And we see some of that here as Jonah is, as it were, making mockery or comic parody of God's call and command. God, you're calling me, I can't believe, I'm going this way. I'm out of here. But as we will see, he will not be allowed to snap his fingers at Yahweh and get away with it. Jonah knew the Psalms. He knew the Psalms. He was well aware of David's words. Where could I run and hide from your face? Where could I hide from your presence? If I lived far across the sea. Even there you're waiting for me. Psalm 139. Why did Jonah make this ridiculous refusal? Jonah knows. Jonah knows that he cannot really flee from the presence of God. His resolve is is not intending to cut himself off from God completely. He ships out because he's running from the Word of God that had come to him. He repudiates servanthood to that word whose demands are to his mind unacceptable. Ridiculous. A a full accounting of Jonah's reasoning and rationale and motives must wait for Jonah's own words later on in the story. And we're going to look at them in chapter 4 when we come to that part of the story. But at this point, the text at hand invites us to make some considerations. To ask some questions. We can certainly imagine that Jonah thought the mission was ridiculous. It made neither practical, reasonable, nor theological sense in his mind. God describes Nineveh both here and later as that great city. Go to that great city. And indeed it was a great city. It was both a military and cultural powerhouse, Nineveh was. In the minds of Jonah and his countrymen, Nineveh stood for the essence of human self-exaltation and anti-God power. Nineveh. Was it not from the time of Sennacherib, the capital of Assyria? And did not Sennacherib call himself the great king and think of himself as the great I am in his program of world conquest? Are you seeing the anti-God attitudes and mindsets and arrogance there? These are the kinds of associations that would come crowding into the minds of those who would hear mention of the vast, great city of Nineveh. Uh, The minds of Israel, the minds of the Hebrew people would immediately make these associations. And yet God was calling Jonah to go. It was synonymous with everything big and bad Nineveh was. And yet God was calling Jonah to go to them. It was an intolerable affront to God. Nineveh was. And yet God was calling Jonah to go. As far as Jonah was concerned, it was another Sodom. An unholy haunt of wickedness meriting complete destruction. Why would the populace even listen to someone like Jonah? I mean, think about it. How long, for example, let, 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 let me just illustrate this to help us understand. How long, for example, would a Jewish rabbi have lasted in 1941 if he stood on the streets of Berlin and called on Nazi Germany to repent? That's, that's essentially what's going on here. At the most practical level, the prospects of success were none, and the chances of death were high. It would be considered unreasonable, so Jonah would not have been able to see any theological justification for his mission. The prophet Nahum had some years prior prophesied that God would destroy Nineveh for its evil. Jonah and Israel would have accepted Nahum's prediction as making perfect sense. Of course. They deserve to be destroyed. So follow the contextual logic here with me. Wasn't Israel God's chosen beloved people through whom He was fulfilling His purposes in the world? Wasn't Nineveh an evil society and pagan culture on a collision course with Yahweh? Wasn't Assyria unusually violent and oppressive even for its own time? Of course God would destroy it. That was obvious. And Jonah would have thought that was a settled fact. Why then this call to Jonah. Wouldn't a success, successful mission to Nineveh only destroy God's own promises to Israel and prove Nahum a false, a false prophet? Why would God do that? What possible justification then could there be for this assignment that Yahweh was giving to Jonah? So Jonah suspiciously mistrusts God. The advent of the Word was calling him to trust God. Jonah instead suspiciously mistrusts God. So we see that Jonah had an obvious problem with the job he was given. However, he had an even bigger problem with the one who gave him the job. he held God suspect. Jonah concluded that because he could not see any good plausible reasons for God's command there couldn't be any. Jonah doubted the goodness and the wisdom and justice of God. We've all had that kind of experience, haven't we? Hello? All of us have been there if we're honest. We've all been where Jonah's been. We sit in the doctor's office stunned and fearful by the biopsy report we just received. We despair of ever finding decent employment after the last lead has dried up. We wonder why the seemingly perfect romantic relationship, the one we always wanted and never thought was possible, has crashed and burned. If there is a God, we think, he sure doesn't know what he's doing. Even when we turn from the circumstances of our lives to the teaching of the Bible itself, it seems to us modern people especially to be filled with claims that don't make a whole lot of sense to us. And when this happens in our lives, we have to decide... Does God know what's best or do we? And the default mode of the anxious, misguided, and unaided human heart is to always decide that we do. We mistrust God. We fear losing control. We doubt that God is good or that He is committed to our happiness. And therefore, if we can't see any good reasons for something God says or does, we assume that there aren't any good reasons. God's ways and ideas are beyond ours. He's not constrained by our understanding or lack thereof, beloved, of what is going on. Our capacity to understand and approve does not set the standard to which God must adhere. This is what Jonah teaches us. This this inclination and propensity that we have goes back to the very beginning. In the garden. What our ancestors Adam and Eve did. The first divine command was, and the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. There was the fruit, and it looked very delightful, and appetizing, and desirable. Yet God had given no reasonable explanation as to why it would be wrong to eat. Not a reasonable one. Adam and Eve, like Jonah, generations later decided that if they couldn't think of a good reason for a command of God, then there couldn't be one. There's obviously not a reason then, not a good reason. If they, we can't think of one, so there must not be one. Therefore, God didn't really mean what he said. He could not be trusted to have their highest interest at heart. And so what did they do? Well, we know the story. They ate. And so what did Jonah do? He ran. Foolishly running from God. Jonah runs away from God. Jonah runs away from the Word of God. But what if we for a moment stand back and look at the entirety of the book? Jonah will teach us that there are two different strategies for attempting to escape from God. We see these same two ways of avoiding God touch down at other points throughout the scriptures. We can discover them in our own lives, in mine, in yours. Paul helps define these two tactics for us. First, he speaks of those who simply reject God overtly and who are filled with. Every manner of unrighteousness and evil and covetousness and malice. They're full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inverters of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. ruthless. He, He describes them in Romans chapter 1. And then he goes on in Romans chapter 2 to talk of those who seek to follow the Bible. You rely on the law and boast in God and you know His will and you approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law, sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in the darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth. And then after, Paul goes on to look at both pagan, immoral Gentiles, and Bible-believing, moral Jews. And he concludes, after doing all of that in Romans 1 and 2, he concludes in a remarkable summation. Listen to this. He concludes that no one is righteous. None is righteous. No, not one. All have turned aside. From God. Romans 3, verses 10 and 12. Interesting. One group is trying diligently to follow God's law, and the other group deliberately ignores it, and yet Paul says that both of them have turned away. What's with that? They are both in different ways running from God. I think we all know that we can run from God by becoming immoral, godless, and irreligious. We, we know we can run from God that way. However, Paul is saying that it's also possible to avoid God by becoming very religious and very moral. And of course, all the time... The all-time classic example in the Gospels of these two ways to run from God is in Luke 15, the parable of the two sons. A story that is actually about two prodigal sons, not just one. The younger brother tried to escape his father's control by taking his inheritance, leaving home, wishing his dad dead, rejecting all his father's moral values and living however he wished but the other brother who stayed home and obeyed his father completely. When his father did something with the remaining wealth that the older son disliked, he exploded in a rage at his father. And at this point, it becomes obvious that he also did not love his father. The older son as much a prodigal as the younger son. The elder brother was not obeying out of love, but only as a way, he thought, of putting his father in his debt, getting control over his father. So he had to do as the older son asked him to do. Neither son trusted his father's love. Both were trying to find ways to avoid their father, ways of escaping their father's control. One did it by obeying all the father's rules, the other by disobeying them all. Are you seeing this? Flannery O'Connor in his novel Wise Blood describes one of her fictional characters, Hazel Motes, as knowing that the way to avoid Jesus was to avoid sin. We think that if we are religiously observant and morally virtuous and good, then we've paid our dues, as it were. Now God can't just ask anything of us. God owes us. He's obligated to answer our prayers. He's obligated to bless us. He's obligated to do whatever we ask Him to do. Beloved This is not moving toward God in grateful joy and glad surrender and love. Instead, it is a way of trying to control God and to manipulate Him and as a result to keep Him at arm's length. Both of these ways of escaping God, of running from God, assume the lie that we cannot trust God's love. His commitment to our highest good. We can't trust that. We think that we have to force God to give us what we need. And even if we're outwardly obeying God, we're doing it not for His sake, but for ours. We have our own selfish agenda. If as we seek to comply with His rules, God does not appear to be treating us as we feel He ought to be treating us, how we feel we deserve to be treated, then the veneer of our superficial morality and righteousness can collapse overnight. The older son in the prodigal story depicts that. The inward distancing from God that had been going on for a long time finally becomes outward and obvious rejection. We become furious with God, and we just walk away. I have met many, many, many people like that. Here in the story at hand, the book of Jonah, we have the all-time classic example of these two ways to run from God. Jonah takes turns. He takes turns operating like both the younger brother and the older brother. In chapters 1 and 2 in the book of Jonah, he disobeys and runs from the Lord and yet ultimately repents and asks for God's grace just as the younger brother leaves home but returns repentant. In chapters 3 and 4, however... Jonah obeys God's command to go and preach to Nineveh. In both cases, however, he's trying to get control of the agenda. He's still trying to get control of the agenda, even in chapters 3 and 4. And when God accepts the repentance of the Ninevites, just like the elder brother in Luke 15, Jonah blows a gasket. He bristles with self righteous anger at God's faithfulness and his graciousness and his mercy to sinners. That's not what you're supposed to do, God. You're breaking out of the box I put you in. You're not allowed to do that. And Jonah effectively views himself as God. Turning the one true God into an element in a larger equation that Jonah himself wants to control. We see Jonah as the younger brother, and he has repented and asked for forgiveness. And this makes his relapse into being the elder brother all the more shocking. Jonah wants to receive God's grace without being changed by God's grace and transformed by God's grace and at the same time to snatch it away from those whose lives are in fact transformed by it. And this seems to be the primary problem facing Jonah. He is utterly astonished and astounded by the faithfulness of God to all people even the most pagan and the most wicked. The conundrum of his compassion and the mystery of God's mercy, it's a, it's a theological problem, but it is at the same time a very significant heart problem. Unless Jonah can come to see his own sin and see himself as living wholly by the faithfulness of God himself, God's mercy and compassion, Toward him, unless Jonah can can come, that Jonah will never understand how God can be compassionate and merciful to evil people while remaining just and faithful at the same time. The story of Jonah, beloved, with all of its twists and turns, is about how God takes Jonah sometimes by the hand and other times by the back of the neck to show him these things. Jonah's story is our story. Turn to somebody and tell them, Jonah's story is your story. It's your story. It's my story. Jonah runs and runs. And even so, though he uses multiple strategies... The Lord is always steps ahead of Jonah. Have You ever found that out about God? He's always steps ahead of us. God also varies His strategies. He's steadfast in His faithfulness. He continues to demonstrate compassion and to extend mercy to Jonah, to Nineveh, to us, to you and me. In brilliant ways, even though we neither understand or deserve it. Would you stand together with me as Frank and the team come? I am well aware that this has been a lengthy drill down session into the beginning of this book. But it's so significant the theme and the message that God is speaking to us today through this text as it relates even with this season of Advent. This second week of Advent we are, where we are in particular focusing on accepting accepting by faith that despite what, what, what's going on in our lives right now, what what it, it, it appears to us that God is doing or not doing. However we think He should be doing things. The, the darkness and the confusion and the bewilderment of all of that that's going on around us and what's occurring, it's, it's, it's accepting that in that, God has a greater idea than mine. His idea, His thoughts, His ways are higher than mine. As much as I think it should be this way, I accept and trust that God knows better. He knows what He's doing. And even though I can't see it and I can't understand it, I'm going to abandon myself to Him in trust rather than foolishly distrust Him, rather than ridiculously refuse Him, rather than in folly run from Him.